0: How do you start something? I know you might be thinking, it would be nice if this guy knew how to start a sermon. (laughs) Well, okay. Well, we started our study of the gospel, the good news of John, by recognizing the invasion of the light. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The person of the Son of God, always existing, began life as a human baby. Well, every other human who ever started life started at conception. So the Son of God started his life on earth in exactly the same manner. The beginning of our knowledge of John the Baptist ended with our understanding that he came leading in order to follow Christ. And just last week, we considered the various ways that men became disciples and then apostles of Jesus Christ the many paths to the one way. Those might be great examples of how to start something, or not, <laughs> but it doesn't really answer our question. How do you successfully start a venture? A new business, a new sports team, a new church, or maybe just something new at church. <laughs> how do you, in Jesus' case, start a mission which will be the center of all human history we now know much of the beginning of the mission of jesus the son of god he was born into the world he'd been introduced into the world by john the baptist he was has selected a team out of the world those who will be his primary operatives (laughs) what's the next step simple really to get that select team behind him 100 percent. and how do you do that if you're the son of god Well, fortunately, we don't have to wonder (laughs) because the Bible gives us a story that tells us how he did that. Well, at least it tells us the next step. Jesus chose his core disciples and on the third day there was a wedding at Canaan, Galilee. Then the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to them, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, "Do whatever he tells you." Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, "Fill the jars with water," and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, "Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast." So they took it. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall (laughs) for this amazing event, to see this amazing sign? I mean, don't you wish you could have been there? Just to see the expressions on people's faces, like the disciples (laughs) or the servants to look into the eyes of Mary as she laid all her hope on her eldest son. Let's start there with Mary's expectation. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Mary's been waiting for 30 years. (laughs) For three decades From the miraculous conception to this moment, Jesus has shown no one what she already knew he was. So what caused her to pick this moment to make public the intensely personal secret she had kept for all these years? I think perhaps he's finally starting his ministry. He made her believe it was time for him to do as the old prophets did. Show some miracle, Jesus. We don't really know what drove Mary. The Bible doesn't say. Whatever the reason, we've got to go on. Let's consider Jesus' deeply surprising response to Mary. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, Jesus is not being rude here. The term he used, translated woman, was one of respect. But on the other hand, he's also not oozing with intimacy either, okay? <laughs> it's, and in a sense, he's putting Mary in her place. Yes, you are my mother. No, you don't set the agenda, okay? <laughs> to say it a better way, Jesus makes sure she understands that he will follow the divine plan not hers. What she wants will be done only because and if it is also God's will. And I kind of wonder, you can think about this and decide, but could he be distancing himself from her so as to lessen the pain when that oh-too-soon-to-be hour did come? Hmm. His hour. What is his hour. What's at stake here? Five times, John records that it was not yet Jesus' hour. Besides this occurrence, Jesus twice said it to his brothers when they were questioning his ministry and trying to get him to confront the religious leaders. Shortly after that, he was teaching in the temple, claiming to have come from God the Father. John said they wanted to arrest him, but no one laid a hand at him because his hour had not yet come. The same exact thing shortly after that when he taught in the treasury of the temple. And then there are the three times John records that Jesus' hour has come. The last was in Jesus' prayer to the Father just before they left for Gethsemane. He started it with this before he went to be arrested. And then earlier that same evening when he was preparing to wash the disciples' feet in preparation for the Passover, John tells us he knew But perhaps the most revealing statement was what Jesus said just a few days earlier, the first time we hear his hour had come, the day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The hour of His glorification is the hour of His death. What? (laughs) Well, way back at the wedding in Cana, when Jesus said to His mother, My hour has not yet come, He was kind of saying, Don't you know the clock starts ticking when I do this? The moment He performs a public miracle, the countdown to the cross begins. The miracle was a sign. It signaled who He was and why He came to the earth. But signaled to whom? Most of the people there didn't even know it occurred. Those few who did, who belonged to Jesus, believed. Of course, they probably didn't have a clue what the whole thing meant, but... But Jesus did. There's a point about Jesus' miracles. This one included, which we should not miss. It's a pet peeve of mine. That is the simplicity and ease of the miracle. This is, as John said, the first physical miracle in which Jesus played a part. We'll count all of those surrounding his birth as outside his own human influence. But this one he either caused or, I think more likely, prayed to the Father for the Holy Spirit to accomplish. Why? What is the point of a miracle? In a human, completely naturalistic sense, these things are impossible. Water doesn't become wine like that. But of course, that is the point. Miracles are used by God to show His imminence, that He is with us, near to us. What was the name, by the way, given by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah for Jesus? Emmanuel, God with us. That's the purpose of a miracle. To point out who Jesus truly is. God with us. One of the more irritating things Hollywood does <laughs> with miracles is they make it look like it's a lot of work. It seems like whenever they show with, you know, a movie with Jesus doing a miracle, He's always... Just tired afterwards, you know, or out of breath or or exhausted from the effort. You know, it's it's idiotic. Miracles aren't achieved by human effort at all. They have nothing to do with human effort. They are entirely and completely the work of the supernatural. And when they are displayed by Hollywood, they're displayed as if they require great human effort. It, It blunts the truth of the message. The message is God is here. If it's human effort, where's God? In an divine sense, miracles are no effort. It's nothing but speaking the word. God does not have to work to do a miracle or create or anything else. It's not work for God in in a sense that we understand work. Pet peeve over now. Let's move on to something more important. (laughs) And that's to note a constant refrain that we find in all of God's work. He uses agents. Even here, Jesus used agents. Obviously, the servants get the water, they carry the water, turn to wine to the guests. Mary was used in that she requested the miracle. And it's often been said that Jesus never performed a miracle for someone without asking them to do something. It's not that he wants people to work for it. Come on, if you want this, you've got to work for it. No, that's not what he's saying. It's because he wants to bless us. Don't forget the seed metaphor. The little we put in becomes a lot in God's hands. And that brings us to the great point concerning the type of miracle this was, the superiority of the new way. Think of the miracles from the old days. Moses' first sign... We've been studying this on Wednesday nights. His first sign to the Egyptians was turning water into blood, a curse. Jesus' first sign changed water into wine, a blessing. In fact, wine was used to kill germs in water to ensure life. So you could say life instead of death. And of course, there's the whole idea of supplying a need at all. In the past, both Elijah and Elisha produced a multiplication of oil for widows. They poured oil out of small containers that just simply didn't stop until they had all they needed. Multiplication, just more and more and more of the same. But Jesus took the place of the very nature He created and created a new substance out of the old. A change from old to new. From death to life, from old to to new maybe this could be a part of the sign and this is interesting as well who had knowledge of the new way it wasn't the rich powerful privileged people no Jesus demonstrated his glory to the lowly first to a bunch of servants (laughs) not exactly the movers and shakers of the world at that time And to a woman, greatly oppressed, even in Israel at that time. And for sure, this miracle spoke to his disciples. Did not John say, and his disciples believed in him? A bunch of lowly fishermen. (laughs) You see, Jesus was not seeking for glory for himself. He knew who he was. He was seeking to help his disciples believe. Believe. The purpose of this sign was to cause belief in the new way. Does this Jesus thing actually work? John records the purpose of this and all Jesus' miracles. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Do you have life? Do you believe? Do the miracles of Jesus Christ move you to admiration, astonished adoration, as you consider the hour that came, the death, He died and the resurrection he lived. Do you believe? If you do, seek him. If you seek him, you will find him. If you seek him, he will do what it takes to build your faith. That's not probably going to be a miracle. I think we're a bit beyond that now. After Jesus rose from the dead, Thomas just couldn't believe. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Only if Thomas could see the miracle, touch the miracle in the person of Jesus, could he believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus, the miracle incarnate, okay, appeared to him. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are we who do not see a miracle and yet believe. Our way to faith will probably be through circumstances and people. Our way in the faith will probably be through circumstances and people. Good and bad. This story even goes on to show us about living in the new way. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Why is that in there? (laughs) Well, because they went on living. How do you go back to normal when you've experienced something extraordinary? Many lovely and pure young couples find it really hard to get back to normal after the honeymoon, okay? (laughs) How do you... You've been flying that high. How do you return to earth? Normal life can be a letdown after you've seen a miracle. But normal life is where we live. The extraordinary can also take another form, a darker form. Many soldiers returning from the intensity of war find it very difficult To live mundane, ordinary lives. I know my dad struggled with it. Either way, the point is the same. What do you do to live the natural when you know the supernatural is quite literally brushing against your fingertips at every moment? First, well, don't forget the miracles, don't forget them. There's a point to the miraculous to remind us that God does reach into our world. In fact, He came into our world. The miracles are to assure us He was really here. Assures us that He really can give us life. That is the message in the sign. I said when we read the actual story in the scripture that I would love to have been a fly on the wall And when this first sign was done, so I, I sort of kind of was, I, or rather I made myself one. I, a few weeks ago we read a part of a story that I wrote in trying to bring the wonder of this first sign of Jesus close to our world. It really was about Joseph and how he was the best man for the job and in that, we read about an old servant remembering a conversation he had had with Joseph, the man who raised Jesus. But I'd like to read you the whole story in closing here because it's all about this first sign of Jesus. Uh, I don't know, maybe it'll, maybe it'll help to better grasp the sign. Gelliel was getting old. He had been the trusted servant of his master all his life. Many would have thought the job demeaning or just plain terrible. He did not. He loved serving. He loved caring for people, and now he was caring for his master's son one last time. This was his wedding. After this week, he and his bride would take some of the young servants and move into the new house the family had been building. His master had decided to stay in the old house. They would allow him to entertain the various business guests that constantly came by with relative ease. Some of those businessmen and their families were guests here now, but they were a small portion. Most of those in attendance were friends or family, like the young widow who smiled oh so gently as she passed him this early morning. She was, well, was both young and old, not yet 50, but she had always seemed wise beyond her years. Her husband had been a particular favorite of his, Joseph. Joseph was a friend. True, he was first a business acquaintance, but he had never seemed like the other businessmen. He was a neighbor and a friend, but as a successful carpenter, he could have been aloof to the servants like all the others. But he wasn't. In fact, he had become a close friend to Galileo. They didn't have many friends, Joseph and Mary. Galileo had always thought it was because of their oldest son. Well, not so much because of him, but because of all that had happened when he was born. Although it had happened far away in Bethlehem, everyone talked about it. Joseph had had to go down there when the Romans decided they hadn't taxed the poor Jews enough. Mary was already well along in her first pregnancy, and that was the start of the problem. They had not had a wedding. I'm sure, a lot of talk about that. And then, and then all that had happened when he was born first, the reports from the shepherds about angels making those amazing statements, then later, the Magi came from the east and gave them gifts, and everyone heard about that. Everyone, including that horrible Herod. At first, Galileo thought the boy must have been killed with all the others. In fact, he feared Joseph must have been as well since no one saw them for years. Then all of a sudden, they show up back here in Nazareth with plenty of money to buy a good place to set up shop and home for their growing family. They had been in Egypt. Who would have thought it? The strangest conversation that Galileo had ever had was with Joseph. It was not long after Jesus went to his first Passover. There had been some mix-up and Joseph and Mary had to go back to Jerusalem and find Jesus. Joseph was telling him about it and Gelliel thought it would be good to encourage Joseph. You have a wonderful son in that boy, Joseph. Joseph's response was a little strange. He never does anything wrong. Gelliel smiled as he responded, Yes, he's always been a good son. No, Joseph replied. I mean, he never, ever does anything wrong well yes Galileo didn't know what he was expected to say Joseph turned and stared at him for some time before he turned back looked down at his hands and quietly but intently said he's not mine you know the shock of his confession made Galileo's heart race Mary had had an illegitimate son whose was it it could not have been sin on her part not Mary was it a Roman soldier This was certainly not unheard of. Kelio's face burned in anger. He felt Joseph's eyes in him. Why didn't he just sit there? Couldn't he say something? So, I mean, well, what do you mean? He is God's son. Kelio felt like knocking Joseph over in all his relief. Joseph thought like any good Jewish father, his firstborn son belonged to God, not to him. Joseph, you gave me quite a start. I thought you meant he wasn't, well, you know, I mean, wasn't yours. Geliel realized as he was expressing his relief that he could very easily offend his friend. It was no small thing to even pretend infidelity of someone's wife. That is what I mean, Geliel. He stated it flatly, no emotion this time, and now Joseph watched him, no, studied him to see his response. Geliel didn't know where to look. He stared at the ground. He tried to look at his friend And then this powerful but gentle man said something that made Gelliel's toes tingle and and his hair stand up. but It also made him wonder if he had lost his mind. I'm telling you, he is the Son of God. Mary had relations with no one. The Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in her. The silence had seemed long before. This time it was an eternity. Gelliel's mind raced. He tried to remember everything he could about Jesus, about Joseph, about Mary, about their other kids. And that's when it hit him. Joseph's relationship to Jesus was not like that with his other sons. It was like Galileo's relationship with his master's son. He stood up and wheeled to look Joseph straight in the eye. He saw it there. This was truth, the truth. He dropped to his knees and held his chest. He could hardly breathe. Joseph knelt beside him and put his hand on his shoulder. As Galileo instinctively looked into his face, he saw their understanding. Joseph was slowly nodding. The tears brimmed in his eyes as Joseph said, You know. You believe. Now it was Gelliel's turn to simply nod in overwhelming wonder. Then Joseph clutched him to his breast and embraced him as only men can embrace. Joseph began to weep and Gelliel knew that with he and he alone, Joseph had entrusted this secret that Joseph had carried this burden alone all his life. They never spoke of it again. Every time he saw Joseph, they grasped each other's arms with fervency, but never said a thing. And then Joseph died. And then Jesus became the carpenter. And then nothing. Life just went on. It had been close to two decades since then. What was happening? What was the plan? Why was the Son of God making plows and yokes and furniture? But now, finally, something was happening just a few weeks before news came that Jesus had suddenly left His home and now Mary had told His Master to expect Jesus with His disciples as a rabbi. There were raised eyebrows, of course. Jesus had not been trained as rabbis are supposed to be. But the respect people had for Joseph and Mary... And indeed, for Jesus, caused them to accept even this. And then just this morning, halfway through the wedding week, Jesus had showed up with his few disciples. Gelliel had to admit that he really wondered what a ragtag bunch they were. Fishermen? Couldn't God's son do better than this lot? Still, he would serve them as he did all his guests, with respect. Weddings were, after all, major events in every family's life because... His master was a very important person. Many had been sent special invitations, but all were invited and all came, more than they had expected. And the bridegroom had the duty and honor of picking the master of the feast. He had chosen a very important man, but one who was not terribly careful. He had ordered the wine be mixed three parts water to one part wine. Generous, to be sure, but the normal four-to-one ratio would have been wiser. It made Galiel worry about the supply. Even with four days of rich food and wine, the guests would probably notice if they were reduced to using poor quality wine. And indeed, that is what had happened. He was on his way now to pull out the old jars. As soon as he picked up the first one, it sloshed around and he smelled it. This wine had gone bad. He shook each jar. They were all bad. There was no wine left at all. This was a disaster. It would haunt the bridegroom all his life. It would embarrass the master of the feast. It would make Gelio's master look like a fool. He racked his brain. He could not think. He had to get some air. He stumbled out of the storage room. As he straightened up, he saw Mary coming towards him from the woman's quarters. Kind heart that she was, she immediately noticed the troubled look on his face. She, of all people, would never look down on anyone because of circumstances, so he told her everything. Mary quickly grasped the gravity of the situation. Her head went down and she thought, but then she looked up and a slow smile crossed her face. Come with me, she said. Galio followed her just around the corner and then he saw him. Jesus and his disciples were clustered together and he was talking with them. Mary stood quietly, hands folded, just ahead of Galio. After a few moments, Jesus looked up at her. They have no wine, she said. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. This was an awkward moment. It almost seemed rude that he should talk so to his mother, but Galiel knew it was not. He knew who Jesus' father was, his real father. It made his head reel as Galiel recognized that she was in a way more child of his than he was of hers. And then he realized what Mary was thinking. Elijah and Elisha had both prayed and multiplied oil. Why, why could not Jesus do the same with the wine? Of course, it would just never run out. Just keep pouring it from the same big jar and a jar would not fail until they needed no more. As Gelliel looked at Jesus, he knew everything would be just fine. Mary turned around and spoke to Gelliel and the other servants who had followed him. Do whatever he tells you. Jesus looked toward them. Then he pointed over towards the house. There were the purification jars. Galileo and the other servants filled these huge jars every morning so that all the guests could go through the ritual washing process for the day. No good Jew would think of eating without doing this. Galileo's brow wrinkled for what could this have to do with the need for wine. Fill the jars with water, Jesus said. Made no sense, but they were servants, so they did as they were told. In fact, Galileo was determined to do more than they were told. He filled them to the brim. He looked up at Jesus as if to say, "'Okay, now what?' Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. The blood drained from Galileo's face. Some of the stricter Jews complained that they used purification jars at all. But to drink out of them? No, no, this water could only be used for washing. And bring water to the master of the feast. He looked at Mary and then back at Jesus, but he had no choice. This man, he had to obey. He got a flagon and a ladle. He filled the ladle and then began to pour it into the flagon. That's very odd. He blinked a few times and filled the ladle again. This time he watched it more closely. It moved strangely for water. Another ladleful. This time he leaned over a bit and without thinking, breathed in through his nostrils. He was so startled, he nearly spilled it. He jerked his head towards Jesus and saw a smile there. This water wasn't water. It was wine. What new thing was this? Gelio was so shaken that he could barely conceal it as he carried the full flagon into the banquet hall. He approached the head table and, as per custom, first offered the wine to the master of the feast. Gelio patiently waited for the pronouncements of acceptance before he offered the wine to the other guests. But the master didn't give him the normal nod, but instead expressed surprise. He turned to the bridegroom sitting next to him and loudly exclaimed, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Gelliel looked back at the other servants that had followed him with their flagons. They would never say anything, of course, but they knew just moments before this wine had been watered. Gelliel's ceremonial duties done, he worked his way out offering wine to all that needed it. Eventually he came to where Jesus and his disciples were. Without a word, he offered each of them this new wine. He looked into the faces of Jesus' disciples as their eyes were fixed on Jesus. He saw awe. And he recognized that they understood what he had when Joseph talked with him so many years ago. This is the Son of God. What is the message in the sign? This is the Son of God. That's the message.